Welcome to the Wolf Admin Podcast. This week I had a great discussion with Dr. Jeff Crone from California. We talked about the art of manliness, audio digest podcasts, Endeavor PBS series, and last but not least, certainly, would be myopia control topics and how to incorporate that into our practice and how all of those things kind of benefit our patients. Additionally, we did have some discussion on private equity, which I thought was very informative. And the last thing I want to talk to you about before I let you listen to our conversation is that you're going to be seeing a lot of updates to the podcast and changes to the podcast, not necessarily in format, but we're going to be expanding some of the content because of the listenership and some of the feedback that we've gotten to include some additional people who have uh, amazing ideas within the profession that um, have been able to help me develop as a provider and as a business owner and have helped a lot of other people in that same realm also. So I, I'm, I'm really excited about what's going to be happening over the next couple months with the podcast. And it's all really thanks to everybody's support and feedback that we've received. So with that, please give us a five-star review. And as always, support those who support this podcast. Today's show is sponsored by iCode Education. At iCode Education, we create and host high-quality, relevant, COPE-approved online optometric CE. We offer practice management courses from billing and coding, fee assessment, and chart auditing to clinical courses that focus on topics ranging from the anterior segment to the posterior segment to myopia control and neurological disease. Additionally, we partner with associations to help them provide their members and non-members with online continuing education at their own pace, on their own schedule. This allows our associations to generate non-dues revenue and provide a valuable service for their members who are allowed to obtain hours from distance learning entities. Check us out at iCodeEducation.com. That's E-Y-E-C-O-D-E Education.com. One more time. E-Y-E-C-O-D-E education.com. Okay. So, so, yeah. so if I'm not interesting, we might be here for hours. Correct. Okay. <laughs> or minutes. No, pre- no pressure. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, so yeah, so I, uh, I'm, I'm really glad that we were able to, to make this happen. I, I think when, when you think about what you get from podcasts in general, like what you're looking for, what types of, of podcasts do you like to listen to? Yeah, um, I, I currently listen to a podcast called The Art of Manliness. And uh, that, that one has been interesting where they interview historical fi- figures or talk about different areas. It's, 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 not, um, it's not meant to be gender chest pumping, but it does talk a little bit about, uh, things that, that in, inherently, um, most of the time, uh, appeal to men. Uh, you know, I, I learned a great deal about, um, Apollo eight, you know, listening to that mm. podcast and, uh, John Wooden was another one that, uh, that, that I didn't resonate with that I have now come to appreciate him and as, as a leader and as a, a gentleman and a human being. Um, I listen to uh, CE. I do do continuing medical education on podcasts hmm. through audio program. Uh, audio Digest is um, is uh, primarily run by by the medical establishment, and they have an ophthalmology component that can be hmm. very quite good. 
And so, uh, so I listen to that uh, pretty regularly. Um, Is that something that, uh, like, how did? Uh, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but I'm just interested. How how does that? Um, how does that work from a CE component? This is just stuff you want to sure. just listen to and, and gain the knowledge, or is there a way that you right. can actually take off credits? Yeah, the, it, it used to be a little more generous. They, they had an arrangement with PCO, and it was COPE approved pretty much across the board. Um, and now I think that the powers that be have gotten involved, and certain lectures are not considered appropriate, quote unquote, mm-hmm. for optometrists. So, mm-hmm. uh, for example, if there's a lecture on phaco emulsification techniques and such, um, I wouldn't be able to get credit for that. Yeah. And I'm not sure if that's a political motivation or just a pragmatic one, but I still listen. Um, you know, it's nice to, to be somewhat knowledgeable when you have lunch with your surgeon, that kind of thing. Totally. Um, and, I can, and I can only get 20 hours every two years on, on non-face-to-face education anyway. Uh, and, yep. the, uh, and the service, it's a service you subscribe to. The service is, uh, it's two, two hours per month. So that's 48 hours over two years. So mm. I get, I get, I get the 20 that you typically are COPE approved from, from that. And, uh, and they're, they're, you know, keeps me abreast of what, what ophthalmologists are talking about. It's also very interesting for me to, to be in a room or listen to a podcast where, where the room is being recorded, where ophthalmologists are talking to other ophthalmologists. Mm-hmm. And I realize that they don't presume that their colleagues know as much as they do either. Mm. Um, yeah, so they're not quite so condescending to the general ophthalmologist about the retina as they, they would to, in my experience, sometimes the OD when they're talking right. about the retina. So, right. so that's been, that's been appreciative of, of, and, and that was my case too when California passed its TPA law and we went, we went, we, we were required to do 80 hours of preceptorship under ophthalmology and I grumbled and I kicked and I, why'd we have to give into that? That's a crazy rule. But I realized I was getting eight hours to basically, go undercover and watch and learn. And, and sure, I, I learned clinical things, but I also watched the way they work, the way they work with their technicians, the way they work with patients. And uh, that was pretty uh, eye-opening as well. So what, what about that? I mean, you know, that was probably in the 90s, right? In yep. the 90s or late 80s. Mm-hmm. So um, at that time, what was one of the things that was most striking to you when you went through that? Well, I had been, our first law did not include glaucoma. And I understood glaucoma for rural environments, but, you know, Fresno is a pretty big city. Most people don't realize that, but it's a pretty big city. And uh, I felt like, you know, there, there are specialists in town and it, the, the equipment's kind of expensive and I, I can, you know, I don't need to manage glaucoma. And then I saw ophthalmologists manage glaucoma and I thought, oh my gosh, I can do such better job. Because I realized that the management wasn't in the clinical knowledge or the equipment. It was in the hand-holding, the question-asking, uh, the adherence and compliance follow-through. And we've been doing that with contact lenses, you know, for decades, centuries, maybe a century. And, uh, and I thought, you know what, I, I'm going to be more fastidious. I'm going to be more, um, more on, on target with glaucoma patients than, than I was seeing surgeons do. And that was, that was very uh, eye-opening as well. Um, also to realize that, uh, um, that if, if a staff member of mine wanted to go work in a facility like that, that I knew that they were not going to be treated in general um, as well as I would treat them. And, uh, and, and that was kind of another perk of, of working at our practice was just the, the human component of, of our leadership style as well. That was, that was a good learning experience as well. Yeah, I think it's interesting because I, um, you know, I, I get that same sense and I, I always think, and I think, I don't know if I've said this on the podcast before, but I always, I always wonder, wouldn't it be nice to just sort of even run an advertisement? Like, are you still seeing an ophthalmologist for your primary eye care? 
we, right. we guarantee that you'll be more satisfied, right? Like just, I mean, just yeah. put it out there because, you know, the reality is, is um, they're not just belittling. I mean, just in, in, again, in general, ophthalmology doesn't just belittle optometry, right? When, the, when people, people work for them, that's mm-hmm. the attitude in general that they're going to have. So if they're mm-hmm. belittling of, an, of one profession, they're going to be belittling of the other people that are around them most of the right. time, I would guess. And, yeah. um, and that, that resonates. I mean, that sort of falls off. If they're doing that to the people around them, then the people that are coming in as patients can probably feel the same thing, even if they're not directly being belittled at the same time. And, right. um, and that just ultimately doesn't lead to good patient care because patients don't, you know, either they lack trust or they're, uh, they're afraid to do something as opposed to understanding why they're going to do something. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting that you made that comment. Yeah. Yeah. I've always thought I did, we never did any TV marketing, but I thought if I ever did, uh, if I was going after that type of patient, I would, I would film in a cafeteria mode where people are lined up with their trays, you know, with somebody slopping jello and, and into the, into the compartment tray and handing it over the glass and, and, and then switch gears to, you know, a five-star restaurant where somebody's bringing, you know, oh, yeah. a, a nice bottle and pouring to you. And it's like, you know, how, how do you, how do you want, how do you want to be served? And because in general, you know, we have an interesting dynamic here in Fresno, and I know there are other places like it, but in California, I haven't seen anything quite like it. Because when I go to, say, I go to Sacramento up the road, and in Sacramento, you might have a retina specialty group where you have five, six, eight retina specialists who work together and all the, all the bells and whistles there. And you've got a group that's mostly cataracts. Uh, you might have a pediatric strab group, a plastic group. Uh, for the most part, you know, you get a few little crossovers, but for the most part, that's how they're organized. Well, here in Fresno, one particular group decided to organize where they would all under one roof have, have one or two people of every specialty. Mm-hmm. The problem with that, as I've seen, is somebody's always the chief. And whoever the mm-hmm. chief is, they get, they get their equipment. So if the chief happens to be a retina specialist, then all the, 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 retina, the retina gear is going to be top line, but the FACO machine is probably going to be antiquated. Uh, and mm-hmm. same vice versa for the group that has a cataract guy or lady in, in charge. They tend to have the best FACO machine, but the retina person is treated like they don't, you know, belong. And so, so we've had to kind of pick and choose, you know, who we work with on what, um, because of that to find surgeons who are exceptionally good, but also, you know, hopefully, you know, we'll treat our patients with a, with some sense of customer service. Now, I don't mind if they, if they go there and they wait two hours to see the specialist and have a, have that kind of experience because that just cements the, the role that we can play in being, you know, efficient and, and, uh, and right to the point. But I had a patient come back to me the other day that I, I sent out for a consult and they were setting up a secondary IOL um, um, transfer. They were going to take out his IOL and put another one in because of dysphotopsia. And, uh, and he came back to me for a consult, but I knew the secondary surgery was already scheduled. And I'm like, well, what am I going to do? I already sent you over. And he just said, I want you to tell me what he's going to do because I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't get that from him. Yep. You know, and there's that, there's just that eyeball to eyeball, you know, that, that I think that, that because of, of, of how we've been trained and, and the, the role we've been called to play that, you know, that has been our bread and butter. Well, and, uh, you know, I think, I think about, um, you know, you brought up glaucoma and I think about the way, the nuances that my dad just loves to toil over with glaucoma, you know, in terms of, of just really questioning a lot of things at a high level. And, um, I just don't think there's anybody, uh, you know, any ophthalmologist or very few that are actually going to do that. I think they're, I think they're going to look at it. They're going to look at the data and make a, a decision because they got, 
you know, 60 other patients they're going to see for the day uh, instead of just kind of analyzing and, and kind of going over, okay, this study and thinking about that and this. And, um, and so it's just really interesting to, to think about that and to see him do it. Right. And, um, and he really loves right. to do that. Yeah. He really loves to do it. Yeah. Well, I, I think your and, dad's um, great. I, I've gotten to know him over the years and, and I appreciate, appreciate what he brought to Vision Source as an administrator and passed on to you. But yeah, no, I agree. And, 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 you know, surgeons like to do surgery. That was the other thing I think I learned by, by going stealth those years, the, those hours for, for, uh, preceptorship is surgeons like to do surgeon surgery. And so if, if there's a glaucoma patient, yeah, they're going to, they're going to add a med. They're going to add a med here. They're going to try to bring, they're going to follow the guidelines, you know, the practice guidelines from, from AAO or whatever it is. But at yep. the end of the day, it's like, oh yeah, well, you need a trap. Okay, here we go. This is this is what I really train. And there's there's a yeah, there's so a, interesting. You know, expectation. It's so so interesting. I think one of the things that it's always striking to me because there are there is this um, you know there's there's this uh, kind of curve of the surgeons that really want to do surgery, and the, you know there's a lot of in Omaha there's a lot of surgeons that that do what I do, um, just not as good. They do what I do ninety percent of the day, and then. You know, ten percent of the time they do some surgery here and there, and um, and and so there's. It seems to me that there are surgeons that are really, really conservative as as far as it comes to cataracts, and then there are surgeons that are pretty aggressive. But the but oftentimes I find that those patients or those surgeons that are really conservative with cataracts are really aggressive with glaucoma surgery. I mean, this is sort of a mm. something. That, so I'll I'll look at these 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 surgeons that. You know, they'll take a, a 2030 cataract that glares to 2100 um, with symptoms, and that patient's really wanting to have surgery. And, and that patient, we don't typically send them there, but you'll get a letter that says, can glean them to 2030. And, you know, and the patient's just telling you that they, they are not happy with their vision and they just right. won't do cataract surgery, which is a super simple, I mean, you know, as you know, right? Um, and then they'll go in and do a trab on a patient that has a pressure of 23. And uh, a very mild inferior um, nasal step, and you're just like, what is right. going on here? Like, like, why are they so aggressive with one and so conservative with the other? And they're not even glaucoma surgeons; they're just general surgeons. So, what's your experience with that? Well, I think with regards to what you're specifically mentioning, um, it's it's a matter of of judgment of the outcome. And again, twenty twenty five years ago cataract surgery wasn't judged by perfection of, of refractive outcome. And you know, like this patient I mentioned to you, who's 20, 25, but is bothered by this, you know, pinwheel Ferris wheel effect he gets from lights from the, from the aberrations that were, weren't taken into account when the particular type of IO wells was implanted. So that cataract surgeon is being judged at a much higher level than, you know, when I started practice, I think everybody got the same, you know, plus 14 or whatever it was, right. IOL, and you just dealt with their refractive error afterwards. And, you know, I even, I, I'm old enough that like your dad, we had to cut sutures, you know, yeah. to, to mitigate, mitigate astigmatism. So, you know, um, that was before we had a TPA laws, so I probably shouldn't <laughs> have admitted that. But anyway, um, yeah, but what I think what you're mentioning there is, is, is so a trab, I mean, how do you really judge the quality of a trab? Well, exactly. you know, it can go south and you can have hypotony and you can have endophthalmitis. But in general, it's like, yeah, I did the trab and your pressures went down. They're going to go down. Right. So, you know, yeah. I'm, and, and it's, it's probably reimbursed at a much higher level in cataract surgery. Yeah. Whereas cataract surgery, you know, you've got people that come back and they have dysphotopsias or they have a diopter cylinder. And I used to be able to read without my glasses and now I have to wear reading glasses. And it's like, oh, you know what? Let's, let's just put it off. And, and you, and you, and you know, we do the same thing a little bit in our practice where, 
you know, I, I'm if I've got a patient who's minus five and the cataract on the right eye is definitely ready, but the left one really isn't, I don't want that patient to be, and they're not a contact lens wearer, I don't want them to be unilaterally Plano and minus five for a year and a half. Yep. So I'm going to make them wait a little longer so we can get boom, boom, we can get the two eyes done within the same month or so. Um, but, you know, I look for, I actually look forward to the day when, when surgeons can really start doing, you know, bilateral cataract surgery same day. I don't, you know, you don't know, know anybody you that does that. that? Not, not in here. No. Yeah. No, there, I think it's are... mainly, it's, it's mainly a flow and an insurance concern, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There are some guys that, um, that'll do them around here. I think that you, they, you know, they're, they're happy to do them, but I think they're happy to do them. And they're basically saying, like you're saying, it's just, you know, it's going to be out of pocket or you know, one of those things, but, um, yeah, it's, I think, yeah, I think we're, I don't know the surgeons that I use, I, I would be confident that, I mean, I look at their outcomes, you know, they just don't, you know, that week of waiting, it's just, they just don't have these bad outcomes. So, um, but then I guess you probably have one and, and, and they realize that they want to keep doing it a week apart just because that prevents the, you know, too bad outcomes patient well it's just it's just the, the way they've always done it right it's just the way the insurance pays it's the way that they, they know how to build they manage it um i i don't know if it, i heard it on one of the again the ce lectures or what that 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 that, that they are starting to do more bilaterals in europe mm. uh, particularly in countries that are socialized medicine because the cost is significantly less right one yep. one trip to the the asc one one technical nurse one anesthesiologist you know all that stuff yep yeah, and and then you know if it's if it's the same day procedure and they're paying you fifty percent of the first eye, you know, for doing the second eye the same day, then then they, there's another cost savings as well. I mean, if that's how they're paying in Europe, obviously. The um. The uh, so Jeff, when you when you were how long were you at SCCO? I, uh, I I finished my schooling there in '87, um, right around the same time as the one and only Scott Chapter that you had on uh, last week, and uh, he and I were 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 compatriots with a year oh, apart. Interesting. And then I spent two years. Um, I spent two years on faculty there, um, and uh, and the first year was a glorified. It was a contact lens residency before they had a contact lens residency. So Tim Edrington there offered me a faculty position, which was twice the money of a residency. And I basically got to function at it with the, a lot of the specialty content lens patients. And then uh, one of the stalwart professors at SCCO passed away that summer, Frank Brazelton, and he was in charge of some of the uh, binocularity laboratories, you know, uh, ferrometry, that kind of thing. And so they had this huge hole to fill and they asked me to stick around another year and I hadn't firmed up my plans yet. So we stayed down there from 87 to 89, uh, which was good for my marriage because my wife was a Southern California uh, beach girl, and she, and she wasn't quite ready to move out of that environment up to the central California region. Uh, but by '89, we were expecting our first child, and home prices were ridiculous in Southern California and reasonable already? in the valley. And so we moved up. Yeah, already, already. Yeah. So then, um, so then Bob Vandervoort taught you BIO. Is that right? He did. Yeah. yeah. In fact, we used to do these these faculty skits where we would parody the faculty and <laughs> and kind of make fun of make funny of their idiosyncrasies. And I actually uh, played Bob Vandervoort in one of the oh, skits. That's awesome. I, I I introduced my newest invention, which which we'd never heard of. They probably were available then, but you know, we was a I used an old typewriter case and wired it to a to a headset and called it a portable BIO, and that was my battery pack <laughs> that I had to carry around with it. 
so that I could turn up the turn up the light to uh, solar levels or something like that. Oh, that's so awesome. We had a good we had a good we had a good time with that. That's awesome. Do you, have you ever talked to talked to Bob since since he left and came to Nebraska? No, I have no, not. I'm sure he probably he, he probably wouldn't remember me, but uh, yeah, no, I think it, I had a real strange education because like when we were taught ocular disease. The first first year we were taught it, we were taught by an ophthalmologist who had been there for 20 years, mm. and he basically taught us to refer conjunctivitis. Mm. Mm. And then and then they they let, showed him the door, and uh, Doug Steffi and George Comer took over right when Dave Sandrowski was coming on board as well, and they started teaching us to treat uveitis. And so mm. we had a few things that we had to uh, had to straighten out when. They, when it came back to the anterior <laughs> segment and go back and, and clean that up a little bit. But Bob was very aggressive. And, and at that time, I mean, very few ODs. I mean, I went around, I would go and visit practices. I, I just loved doing that. I took a little notebook and I would go in and, and spend a half a day with doctors, usually got free lunch out of the deal. And, uh, and very few doctors dilated, um, even, yeah. even, even rarely. Um, most of the doctors, you know, were using a, D, a DO or a MIO. Um, the one doctor who was my mentor at the time was uh, was in Fountain Valley, California. His name is Dan Carver, and he was a protege of Barry Barisi. And so oh, he really? taught me the soap format. And you know, back when the, the whole idea of medical optometry was, you know, was was you know, what, what does that mean? Um, yeah. And it was it was it was it was really great. So yeah, there were fun 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 times. I went to a VA hospital. Was John John Townsend and Dave Selvin were my teachers there and they they went on to great careers in the VA hospital. I think John is still the director of optometry for the VA and and uh, we got some great we got some great uh, great great you know we were really on kind of the first part of that wave you know when I was in school ODs got Medicare parity and uh, and TPA laws were just kind of churning over I mean the AOA journal would have a map on it every third month of you know the latest the latest state joined and it, it was fun it was exciting still is exciting but no, it is exciting. it is it just seems like you know, obviously I get to hear these stories and I, I don't know what the, the like quote unquote rank and file OD was, but my, you know, what their perception was, but my perception is that it was just a battle that they were going to win. You know, every single, every single opportunity, it was a battle for them to, you know, continue to enhance patient care throughout the, and there was a real drive for it. Um, now I, I think where we are today is that there's still this drive to be independent, but there's also, um, there's also a, a very big sense of complacency in a lot of cases. What's your thoughts about that? Yeah, um, I, I think I think that what is what I've kind of seen is is that there there was a there was a strong desire to to develop. And again, I I, I got to be careful because I think California is a little bit of a strange animal when it comes to optometric models because of the strong prevalence of managed vision care for you know decades now mm-hmm. um, but a lot of practices in in, in my you know, up and down the state of California uh, you know have have really become very good at providing excellent care um, with regards to the managed vision care model particularly VSP and so you know VSP told us we had to do automated visual fields and so we added visual fields to our you know armamentarium not because we were really that, you know, that up to date on arcuate scotomas or the rest, but because we wanted to, you know, maintain the highest level of reimbursement through VSP. And so, so that became, you know, that became the level to aspire to or, or you know, kind of the, the, the guardrails on which to practice. And it wasn't until um, I was challenged um, by a colleague of mine who doesn't live in, didn't stay in Fresno long. He went up to the Bay, Northwest and worked with um, 
of Civic Cataract and Laser Institute. Mm. His name was Ben Stabner, but he was in Fresno for a short time. And he told me, you know, he was the one who first brought up the idea that, you know, optometry is a lot bigger than you think. And I was an academy fellow, but I went to the academy meetings and I just kind of sat in classes all the time and just learned. I didn't really talk with people in practice. And then one time I had the privilege of going to SECO and it was like, wow. And mm. particularly at that time, because California didn't have a TPA law and I saw what ODs were doing. And then, of course, my first vision source meeting, a national meeting that, that, that I went to was in Palm Beach, you know, some 17 years ago. And I, I ran into so many doctors who were, who were putting down, you know, tens of thousands of dollars for a, a GDX or an HRT. And mm -hmm. I had never thought that that would, that would be within the realm, realm of optometry. So, um, you know, Isn't pretty, interesting? pretty, uh, pretty incredible. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting the different dynamics of every single meeting that you're, that you're referencing, you know, but what's interesting to me is you, you talked about, you know, you go to academy meetings, that's kind of what your thing was. And then you went to SECO. What was so different about SECO than the yeah, academy well, meetings? Well, I think what I saw in SECO is I saw, I saw practitioners who were, again, you know, not being, not being restricted by what anybody, and again, from my experience, it had been more like uh, um, um, VSP, uh, told them what, they, what an eye exam was or what it should be or what an optometrist should be. And mm. it, was a, it, was, it was primary care optometry. As, as I hadn't seen it before. And, uh, and, and it was a, you know, I still think it's a great meeting. I haven't been in a number of years, but my experiences there have been really positive. And, um, I think that it's, it sits for me, it sits somewhere between the academy and a vision source meeting because yeah. it is more educational. You, you know, you're going to get more hours when you go to SECO as opposed to vision source meeting, but it has a little, that same kind of general energy and vibe of practitioners who really like what they're doing. Yes. Um, as much. Um, you know, I remember I was, um, uh, Jerry Legerton is, is, is somewhat of a, one of those persons that, you know, there's certain moments in your professional and your personal life that, that kind of ring resonate with you. And I went to a lecture at, as an alum, at alumni weekend at SCCO and he was there and he's a real bright guy, innovator, inventor, you know, he was behind the, um, the hybrid lens, you know, when it first came out with Paragon, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And, and he, he gave a lecture about, um, well, the title of the lecture, I still remember it was was uh, vigilance, diligence, and excellence. Hmm. And he talked about bringing those three skills to, to optometry. And then he went on to kind of opine, probably off script, about how, you know, why are we optometrists? We're optometrists because we didn't want to go to medical school. And we're optometrists because we didn't really want to go to law school. We wanted a profession where we could be respected, but we didn't have to be admired. We just wanted to do a good job, go home at five o'clock, have a nice life, and take, you know, it, it's a, it's a great thing, but we have to think about what defines us, how we, how we select who we are becomes who we are. And I think, you know, I think Gary Gerber is one of those people who, you know, I remember he had an article years ago, again, that resonated with me where he said, stop thinking like an optometrist, hmm. you know, where the, the, the most, the most innovative people I know are the ones who step away from that role and, and, and are, are different are, you know, the Glenn Ellisors, the Bobby Christiansons, the, mm -hmm. the, the Walt Wests and the, uh, uh, and, uh, you know, the, those people that we admire and that, that step out and say, you know, this is what we can do. Yeah. Well, and, and, um, I mean, the, the whole evolution of a practice in general, I, I, I want to explore what you're talking about a little bit more. Um, so how do you recognize the next step that you're going to take in your practice to maybe be as bold as, as what you're talking about is to not be an optometrist? How do you reference or how do you, make that judgment to say, okay, well, this is something that 
is is within optometry in the big global sense, but it's not something that that people are. There's a lot of people doing, and so. Um, right. So how do you make that determination that it's going to be something you're going to incorporate into your practice? Right. Um, yeah. I mean, a couple of things come to mind. I mean, and I, not to not answer your question, but uh, I, my brain started going to an experience where, you know, I was, I was reading and hear about, hearing about, um, you know, place where they were creating uh, referral centers for, for laser surgery and ODs were becoming investors in a laser surgery, bringing in surgeons to do laser. Mm-hmm. And um, so I got involved in some a, a, a venture somewhat like that that was starting to catch a little bit of wind down in Southern California, and I tried to bring it to Central California. And we were going to bring a surgeon down from you know Sacramento, which is a few hours away from Fresno for those who don't know the the, the, the geography. So mm-hmm. so far enough away that nobody local knew this surgeon, and we brought him down and we did a kickoff meeting. I can't remember how much we were asking from the ODs, maybe ten thousand dollars, maybe fifteen. Mm-hmm. I can't remember. And, uh, but it was, but it was, it was not well recepted, well received, excuse me. I didn't get a good reception. And when a local cataract surgeon got wind of it, you know, he went out and started, held his own dinner, didn't invite me, of course, and, <laughs> and, and brought in and said, well, we can do this. And I'll only ask, I'll only need $5,000 from you. Mm. And kind of stole that thunder, if you will, created this, this little other entity that within a few, a few years kind of had died out and, and then he brought, he was flying a surgeon up from LA to complement his cataract pit practice with LASIK surgery. So we kind of lost that opportunity. So it's, it's really tough because there are certain things in the community where you, you, and that's where vision source has been fantastic because as you create, you create with the meetings, you create a community where with your colleagues, your local colleagues can feel a sense of safety and vulnerability and honesty and yet also be challenged to think to the next level and, and, and you can bring that to them. Yeah. So that that's probably where where my role is more. Um, but but back to answer your specific question, um, there is a certain kind of economics. You know, there there was a there was a professor that I never had for any classes that that had a had an interesting reputation that would be very unpolitically correct at, at the, in the present day at SCCO. <laughs> but he left right when I got there. But one of the things that he said that that carried you know still still was being you know. Um, bantered about was find a rock that fits your rear end and sit in it. Hmm. And, and his idea there, you know, that in that simple kind of crass phrase, he's basically telling people to differentiate and back to Jerry Legerton, you know, to be vigilant, diligent, and excellent in what they do. And so we've, we've, in my particular practice, you know, it's not just about, wow, you know, Lipoflow is amazing. We have to have that just because it puts us on a cutting edge it also takes a look and we take a look at that and we say, well, is, is that going to advance really who we are right now mm-hmm. um, and what we're doing? And we chose not to bring it on because another one of our vision source colleagues who's only two miles down the road has it. Mm-hmm. So I'd rather support her and let her, let her be more profitable with, with the equipment that she's put a huge investment into. And we can, we can refer and work back. And then if she gets into a bind with a particular, you know, uh, uh, orthokeratology patient or scleral patient, that's, it's got her a little bit tied up. She'll send that back over to me because that's, that's a little bit more of my niche. And so, yeah, so there, I think, I think I'm not, I'm not the type that will simply do it for doing sake. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I don't have a VER. Um, I should have a Maculogic. Um, I don't yet. Uh, but, it, but that's next on the list. Uh, they're working, they're working me hard and, and your presentation <laughs> by both Pamela and Amanda Lee was pretty convincing. So that's, yeah, that's pretty really compelling when you look at it. 
it is. It yeah. is. It really is. To to I'm still I still want to understand a little better about you know what exactly are we doing on that early on that in that early detection. You know, if I find ganglion cell complex loss prior to visual field loss, then I'm going to institute treatment with you know IOP lowering drops. Yeah. I'm I'm still wish we had something more than just which sounds awful to say it more than just nutrition lifestyle and nutraceuticals with regards to early yeah. AMD, but. But those are powerful things that, that we need to give people the education and choice about. So I'm coming around on that. I'm looking forward to the AMD protocol um, and looking forward to what you guys come up on that as well, because that, that, that I think will elevate the level of profession. I think it um, I think when you, you know, the same thing, I, I for for a long time, I was kind of very stuck on um, on. OK, so if we could detect it earlier, what are we going to do about it? You know, the question is, how is it going to change? How is it going to impact? But, um, you know, when you look at a lot of the data, there's the, the hard part about um, when you get pre-A red. So when you get into basically category one and category two, and then what's term, being termed like subclinical, where patients have um, delayed dark adaptation responses, but no uh, photographic or OCT findings that, is, um, that, that are uh, identifying AMD changes. So the idea then is that there's this cholesterol deposit that be that's between Bruch's membrane and the RPE that is starting to essentially slow down the transmission um, of right. the signal, which which leads to a and delay. There, and there's a classic example. There's a classic example where we kind of have to stop thinking like an optometrist because are we going to be have enough chutzpah to oh, yeah. to then go to go to the primary care physician and say this patient should be on statin. Yeah, you know, not not because of not because of their risk of stroke or or what or cardiac events, but because of their eyes. Yeah, you know, that's uh, yeah. And, you know, right now I'm kind of working with with I'm trying to work with the rheumatologist um, because I'm starting to realize how many patients are are on excessive dosage of Plaquenil. Yep, because they're just simply taking two pills a day every day, and of course, if their if their weight is below a certain level, that's too much. And so now I'm getting more aggressive at telling. Kind of giving people more guidance to say, no, you should take two pills on the even days and one pill on the odd days, or maybe you should take one pill, you know, Monday through Friday, and take two on the weekends, and and give them give them a, because of the way Plaquenil is is absorbed in the body, you can figure their weekly dosage and then divide that up because you've got two hundred milligram capsules, and right. and but you know, but again, is that you know that, how is that going to be accepted by by the rheumatologists in town? Uh, yeah. But thankfully, we've got some. I've got some articles written by ophthalmologists right. who happen right. to wear the same wear this wear the same blazer as them, and I can forward those on to them and say, "Look, this isn't just optometry. This is this is your colleagues, your MD colleagues, that are saying this." And so, you know, we can do a better job. Let's do a better job. Yeah. Whenever I get pushback, I, I'll just basically um, send along with my my most current report. I'll send along the Retina Society's. Uh, white paper on Plaquenil testing and screening and dosing. And, um, and then, you know, it seems to kind of change the way that they approach it, but, but I'm getting that less and less over time. And, and I think that's the same thing with, with AMD is that, you know, when you're getting earlier and earlier, the real challenge I think is, um, you know, you brought up statins and, and, uh, there was some, some studies that showed that, that really high doses. I mean, it's astounding when you look at those studies and you look at the images where the, these huge, I mean, these drusen had to be larger than 250 microns wide. Um, just, just huge drusen that uh, after patients are on high-dose statins are eliminated. Now, what, what also happens is that you get quite a bit of um, RPE modeling at the same time. 
but that was probably there anyway. Um, so, but, but I guess the bottom line is that it's very interesting to see, okay, well, could we get into the point of just being better with cholesterol management in general in these patients? And then right. you, um, and so we could get into a lot more of the details, but, um, but you have to, you do, because it takes so long to get an A-RED study, um, and it takes so long to know what that nutri- nutritional changes are going to make. And it's hard to, um, you know, it's hard to control for what that person is going to do outside of your clinic hours and outside of your recommendations. You know, you have to be able to just make some, um, I wouldn't say they're leaps, but you have to make some connections in the literature. Uh, and I think when you actually look at that, and that's what the protocol is able to do, is you can you can say that, you know, we know that patients who have AMD, cadavers that had AMD, have a uh, lower um, MPOD number. So you know that they have the AMD when they when they when they're dead, and you and you dissect that and you analyze the MPOD number that they're going to have lower MPOD. You can also right. know that patients who have lower MPODs will also have lower serum MPODs or serum carotenoids, and we we know that if we can elevate the serum carotenoids, we can ele- elevate MPOD, and we can also know that um, if you uh, so so then you can know if you supplement and you can elevate serum carotenoids and you can elevate MPOD then the next step is then we can um, reduce the the level of AMD uh, or the likelihood of AMD over time. But the thing is that I really had to wrap my mind around was that, you know, it's not a game of five-year risk or even 10-year risk. And we we worry about that because that's what the studies show us. But it's a 20-year, you know, a 25-year, a 30-year risk. Mm-hmm. And so what we do now can really, the hard part is, is that what we do now can really impact what happens in 25 to 30 years, but it's hard to right. see that direct correlation. Right. And that, and, and that's a nice segue over into the importance of, of myopia management. Yeah, you know, totally. Cause, cause you know, so, cause I, for, yeah, no, sorry, I want to jump in because it really struck me. There was uh, an article in focus today that was talking about, um, Stephanie Wu was in there and, and it was talking about right. the number of ODs across the country who uh, used a amniotic, who billed for an amniotic membrane last year. Do you know what that number is? I no, I have no idea. So take, take a wild guess. How, how many actual clinicians, not Correct. procedures, but clinicians? Correct. Yep. Individual clinicians that used an amniotic In 2018. Membrane. 2018, yep. And so they were billing on their own, not part of an MD group. I'd right. say it's, it's around 100. Okay, so so it's a little higher than that. I was still blown away. It was okay. four hundred. Four hundred. Yeah. So no. um, yeah. So and they, I mean, and they probably yeah, and they and they did of, of all the amniotic membranes, you know, provided through ODs. They probably did eighty to ninety percent of them. Right. You know what right. I mean. Right. right. Yeah. So then the other um, then the other so you bring up myopia management because we sent um, so what's interesting is I start thinking about this in in other ways and a lot of the billing and coding stuff I do and helping doctors to understand their value um, I find that there's still a lot of docs that that want to do things but they just really can't wrap their mind around how to make them profitable because they see the profit of I can do a routine exam sell glasses or contacts this is what I make routine exam glasses or contacts right. is what I make and so it's really hard for them to get out of that mode because they don't understand the value of those additional services like myopia management like a autologous serum or dry eye or like uh, amniotic membranes. And, um, mm-hmm. and so we sent our um, associate, uh, Dr. Barrett, to um, the Vision by Design this year. And she said, I can't remember mm-hmm. how many people there were there, maybe two or 300 people, maybe 400, I can't remember. Mm-hmm. But bottom line is that 
like they're they're at the very front edge of what people are doing and most people just aren't they're not even thinking about myopia management so what was your impetus to kind of start doing that uh right and and, well, and kind of jump on yeah i'm i'm pretty involved with the cornea and contact lens sec refractive technology section at the academy and i've been in leadership process through that for the last, gosh, 20 years now. And I was in charge of our program a few years back when the Academy was in New Orleans. And, and the year before I was thinking about that, 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 that program was already pretty set. So I was thinking about the next year in Anaheim, what to do. And, um, I was in, I, I went into one of the poster sessions, which are, you know, fairly not very well attended and, and at the Academy, they're the, the true scientific stuff. And, and it was at that, at that presentation, I think it was specifically around atropine that, that it finally rang a bell in my mind. And I thought, Oh my goodness, for, I've been in practice for 25 years and I've been telling parents, you know, yeah, Johnny's now nearsighted. It's a genetic predisposition. He's about a minus two now. And for the next eight to 10 years, it's just going to go up and up and up. And he may end up at a minus four. He may end up at a minus eight and we'll just hang on for the ride and see where he goes. Mm-hmm. Okay. And at that time, if you'd asked 80, if you asked, you know, 100 optometrists about saying that to Johnny, who showed up at a minus 125 or whatever, they would have all said, yep, that's right. I mean, there was no buzz. There was no discussions. But at that, at that, at that poster session, and I, and I think that was when Brian was still alive, Brian Holden, and he spoke up and I realized that that's malpractice. The, 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 mm -hmm. To not educate the patient and the parent about the trajectory of myopia by putting a single vision glasses or single vision contact lens on that patient, you are putting gasoline on the fire. And to do that without proper informed consent is just wrong. And, and, and so, so I, I then went on a rampage to get our programs for the Academy in Anaheim. We put together two, two hour programs. One of them was an Arvo presentation as well. And we brought in Pauline Cho from, from Hong Kong. And uh, Earl Smith and David Bernson, and we had two fantastic panels. And the goal, the, the basically goal of these four hours was to to say is is at least educating parents and and about their children about myopia management, the standard of care. Should that be the standard of clinical care that, that we aspire to? And the over overwhelming response from the panel was yes, 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 yes. Doesn't mean you have to do it. But yeah. you, you, you have to have to know that, that you're, you're, you're not, you don't have to be part of the solution, but you got to stop being part of the problem. Yeah. So even if you put them in straight top 35s, you're doing the patient a tremendous favor. So, uh, yeah. You know, I, I, so, so I've been, um, myopia control has been on my radar for quite a while because the evidence was starting to, you know, come out in 2014, 2013, where there's some big studies that were really showing us some benefit. And, um, and, so we've all, we've been talking about it with patients for a long time, and what we're seeing is that the, obviously the more we're discussing it, the more we're having the conversations, the easier we're, it, it's getting for us to have those conversations, and the more recognized that these patients are are you know it's familiar to them, they've heard about it before, but pretty much it's it's I mean to my knowledge, um, uh, you know Dr. Chapman in Gret in Gretna, Nebraska, and she's in our area is is really doing a ton of myopia management. And we are in our practice, and uh, you know, I've talked to a couple people in our vision source group that are, you know, they'll do some uh, occasional, you know, maybe they'll do some atropine. Not a lot of orthokeratology, not a lot of of multifocal uh, center distance, multifocal contact lenses, and um, and it's just, I think there's 
there's just sort of this unknown about really maybe how to get started or how to um, you know how to go down that road or maybe even that that the science really isn't settled and so I'm going to wait until mm-hmm. it is settled. What's your answer to mm-hmm. that? Well, my answer is 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 not on my grandchild. Mm-hmm. You know, I, you know, if 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 you're doing that with a with a youngster who's minus one last year and is minus one and a quarter this year, yeah, okay, you know. Because that fits that fits that criteria. Maybe I can wait. Or they're are they're eighteen years old and they're minus one. Okay, yep. but 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 not at seven, not at right. six with a with 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 a young child of of parents who are of, of uh, you know uh, Asian descent uh, who are both minus sevens. You know, you you have an obligation to say we've got to stop this train. Yeah. Um, and and I don't really understand why why more don't. Come in, come on board with a center distance multifocal. Um, you know, I, I think I think once you really grasp the concept of peripheral defocus, you then understand. Oh, okay. It's you know, I I, I with 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 some colleagues I was talking to, there was this discussion that they were. I could tell that their their mindset was, you're controlling myopia if you do ortho K and the and the uncorrected vision is 2020. And I'm like, no, no, no. You just corrected their vision. Right. You're not controlling their myopia unless you've created a blur circle. That's within the pupil, right? So if you flatten their cornea so much that their their elevated epithelium is outside their pupil, you're not controlling their myopia at all. Now, right. granted, they may still be better off in four years than not, but um, but yeah. So so there's you know, and I, I can't remember which of your which of your guests kind of plugged the Brian Holden Vision Institute course, but I've I've taken the first two of that too, and and it is it is just fantastic, both in the way it's presented and it's just a different learning. Environment and it's 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 it, it's something every OD should take and mm. and I know Amir Amir is on board to get the Vision Source family to 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 take hold of this and uh, and really bring it bring it to the forefront as well. Um, so yeah, I think like I said, I, I think it's it that 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 goes back to the not thinking like an optometrist part two. You know, I've always felt that you know I my, my dad taught me that you know if you borrow your neighbor's lawnmower. You, 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 when you're done with it, you wash it, you fill it full of gas and, you know, and you, and you give it back better than you found it. You know, when a young man wants to date my daughter, that's what I say. I say, look, leave her better than you found her. Hmm. And, and, and that's, that's kind of what I think we should do with our patients and with our practices as well. Um, and, uh, you know, th- th- not to switch gears too much. And th- that's no. where this whole issue of, pr- of private equity has me, has me really curious and interested too, because, you know, again, listening to your podcast, trying to get caught up on on the type of things you're talking about, is you know there there's this idea of yeah, you know, I understand a practitioner whose practice is maybe making three hundred thousand dollars a year and they've paid off all their loans, maybe they own the building, and so they're making a nice income on three days a week. Yep. And that practice can't sell to a young OD who wants to make you know at, at a real high value, yep. but a private equity firm that needs a location in that that neighborhood might pay prime prime dollar. That's more than market value, yep. and that's hard to tell a retiring OD. Don't don't take somebody who's willing to pay you what more than what it's worth. I get yep. that scenario, but in so many other scenarios, I think think ODs are selling themselves and they're selling the future short by by copying it by by cashing cashing in their chips. You yeah, know, well, and, and I told them, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, go no, go mm-hmm. ahead, go ahead. Sorry, sorry to. I was going to say, I remember when when. When, when Amir shared about what was going on in North Carolina with a particular group that was buying up yeah. practices, what flashed in my brain was the, was the scene from It's a Wonderful Life when Mr. Potter brings in um, George Bailey 
and tries to buy him off with a three with a with a job for three years for you know whatever thousands of dollars a year. He's basically going to basically give him a job so he can shut down the building and loan. Yeah, and and George George Bailey could have sold out and 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 done great, but he realizes that that his practice exists for for a better and bigger purpose. And and maybe that's you know maybe some ODs are going to roll their eyes at me and click their tongues and go like, come on, Crone, you know, how does my <laughs> little practice exist for a bigger purpose? But maybe it's in areas like this, like in more aggressive macular degeneration management at early stages, like my like myopia control areas that that another eye clinic, whether it be corporately owned refractive care. Or large, you know, medical surgical focuses where they're they're not going to be able to turn the wheels on those conditions like we can. Yeah. And there's and 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 the void there would be would be tremendous. And we yeah. we would not we would not leave our communities better than we found them. Yeah, it's really so hard. No, no, I I I think I think you're right, Jeff. I think um, you know, the the hard part is that if if I'm you know if I'm ready to sell my practice. And, um, and somebody comes in and offers me good money and I'm ready to be done, you know, and walk away, then I can't blame, I can't blame somebody for doing that. Um, Mm -hmm. I also, I also wonder the, you know, I also think back to, I think most of these guys that have practices that are doing that, they probably are like, I will always want to put myself in their shoes, but I also want to say, okay, if I'm in their shoes, what am I going to think back to now? to try to make sure that we've got some longevity in the practice so that it stays independent and it stays um, kind of cutting edge and, and being able to be limp, you know, mobile and, um, and responsive to, to changes. And it seems to me that, um, that like, there's a lot of stuff. I, there's a lot of stuff that I do right now that I love. I mean, I love doing what, what I do. Is it, is it hard is it a challenge every single day? There's a challenge in my practice, whether it's, patient care or whether it's, uh, human resources or, you know, I mean, we've got challenge, but you know, I wouldn't trade it. That's, that's what, that's, that's what I signed up for. Um, Mm -hmm. I I don't think, so I think what can happen sometimes is, you know, I could see also how you'd get kind of get beat down. So if if I didn't have a whole, another group of docs that we could get together and do a brainstorm session or a mastermind session where we can sit and explore ideas about how do I solve this problem? And, talk to other, like you're talking about with our vision source groups. It's like, I, I could see that would be easier for me to, to kind of feel like I'm on, on an island and somebody else needs to bail me out. Um, right. But gosh, I, I think, you know, I can't imagine I would sell, if I were going to still see patients and you'd sell to private equity, you have to sell to an, for an awful lot of money because all the things that you like to do right now that, you know, that make you a practice owner, like, you know, I get a close on if I don't want to see patients, I'm just not going to see patients. You know, I'm going to go and do some of my family or take time away. Well, you don't get to do that anymore. You're not writing the, you know, you're not, you're not the one that gets to say when we're going to do things and when we're going to buy a new mm-hmm. piece of equipment. If that piece of equipment goes down and it's not ROI all over it, doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It's not coming back. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Have you seen much yeah. uh, private equity in, in California? Um. The answer to that question is yes, particularly because of mm-hmm. San Diego uh, and a little bit in Orange mm-hmm. County, but not much north of what we call the Grapevine, which is the range of mountains that that splits Southern California from Central California. So, um, yeah, and and uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to get too, you know, start throwing too many stones about how it no, can no, work no, no, because no. again, you you can create, you know, if the right person's at the center, 
you you know you can you can create a pretty amazing corporation and you could yeah. create a corporation that really cares about all these issues we're talking about um but what bothers me is is that the whole the, the money behind this you know it's not like some national federal grant that's coming out to improve you know reduce the risk reduce the numbers of macular degeneration in highly myopic patients by the year 2040 Mm-hmm. We're talking about people who are saying, you know, where can we put our money and get 20 percent? Right. Because, you know, the stock right. market's not growing fast enough. Right. And that's the motivation. Right. That's the motivation. And that has that has yellow red flags all over it for me. You know, um, I we are extremely blessed. You know, I was I was I was actually just talking to my son. He's 30 years old. And we were just talking about, you know, life and growing up. And I have two two momentums, mementos that that were that that are that I that I have around. One is a little jar of sand that my, my niece, who's also my OD partner in the office, she brought back from, for me from uh, Omaha beach. It's a little jar of sand from Omaha beach. And I, and I, and I told my son, I look at that at some days and I think, you know what? I got nothing to complain about. You know, those young men died on that beach so I could have a bad day. So I could, so I could deal with managed vision care. So I could deal with a staff member that quits or calls in sick repeat, repeat times. You know, I, at the end of the day, my problems are not that great, you know. And the and the other thing I, I picked up on our trip to Austria was a was a rock from the Matthausen uh, work camp, and and to think about you know again the oppression and the suffering and I think you know the world is so much bigger than Milo practice. So so when I look at my practice, yeah, I think about money and I think about profit and all those kind of things, but I also think about about I really think about the people because you know I'm a person of faith, I'm a man of faith. And, and I believe in, in, in eternity. I believe in an eternity past and eternity present. And so I look at those people I deal with and think, how, how is this going to make an impact in their, for lack of a better word, soul? Yeah. You know, so, so that, that causes my schedule to come to a screeching halt when I find out, you know, that the woman in my chair just lost her husband of 40 mm-hmm. years or four years. It doesn't have to yeah. be 40 years. Yeah. You know, and, and, and that's, you know, so whether I'm an optometrist or, a, or an ophthalmologist, I work in a corporate practice or whatever, if, I, if, I'm, not, if I'm not human, um, what's the point really, yeah. you know, to go sit on it, to go, to go sit on a beach somewhere. Um, I like sitting on the beach, but, <laughs> but I think we're meant, we're meant to, we're meant to work. We're meant to produce. We're meant to think. We're meant to, to, to encounter challenges and, and create out of them something new and different. And, um, and like you, that, that, that gives me life. It gives me purpose. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, there's a there's a guy. His name's Sam Barron. He's not a, a vision source optometrist, but he practices in um, in Golden, Colorado. And I was there in maybe 2011, 2012, giving a lecture, and um, he came up and said, "You know, you should go. You always ask where sh- where I should go to dinner, different places, because I just like to. I like food. It's how I like to travel." And he um, mm-hmm. he, he is a man of faith. He's not, he's not Catholic, but he's, and I don't know if you're Catholic either. I, I am, but he, he's a, he's a Christian. And he, um, he came up to me afterwards and he said, um, he said, well, I, I got this great, um, Italian restaurant, best Italian food in, in, uh, in, in Denver. And so, uh, so this is where you should go. So he writes this address down and, um, and then come to find out it's, it's his house and his wife's cooking. And it was amazing. It was just <laughs> He, right. he invited, yep. He invited us over, and it was just cool. excellent. And I had a just a wonderful time getting to know him uh, as a human and as an optometrist. But you know, he's always he's got this. Every time I get an email from him, I you know the bottom of the page he's got his big happy smile, and you know that's yeah. kind of his mentality. I could be busier, I could make more money, but I just want to make a difference in people's lives. And he gave me this little mm-hmm. um, this little pebble 
that is a real smooth pebble that um, that I keep in in my travel bag. For a while, I just kept it in my pocket, um, but I just tend not to like things in my pocket in general. But I always think about Sam because he, uh, you know, it was a really kind gesture. But his point was is that you know you're you can always make a difference with with people, and if you're doing that, you're making a difference in general with people. Then the world becomes a better place, obviously, by those one those small acts. And mm-hmm. ultimately, you're serving your purpose. Yeah. Yeah. The yeah. town I grew up in was actually not right in, not Fresno. It was a little small town about a half an hour away uh, called Reedley. And we've got a great vision source office there now. And mm-hmm. but um, but one of the stalwarts of the town, a man who was very influential in my life as well, was the barber. Hmm. And uh, and he was just he was just a tremendous, you know, honest. Um, can I use the word, you know, godly? But humble, hardworking, you know, sense of humor, and the number of people that turned out for his funeral was phenomenal. And I would, I would venture mm-hmm. to say that he he had more people paying him his respects when he went um, than than any of the any of the doctors in town. Yeah, you know, it was he he, he touched people. And of course, you have to get your hair cut more than once a year too, so that that kind of helps. Right. right. But uh, <laughs> but. Uh, but anyway, you know, and then that's kind of where I've gone. You know, I have four children and, and as, as I've raised them and, and tried to be an influence in their life, I said, you know what, if, do, do what, do what, do what, what brings you joy, what passionate about what, what you've been created with a drive for. But ultimately, you know, work hard, um, uh, and, and be honest, you know, that, yeah. that if you can, if you can, if you can look back on your legacy and, um, you know, my wife and I, we, you know, like everybody these days, we get into different shows. And one of the shows that, that we, we've really come to love is a PBS show called Endeavor. Hmm. I don't know if you've heard of it. No. But give it, a, but give it a try. I think you'll love it. Okay. And there was, there's a, there was this one older gentleman who's a police officer, you know, at the end of his career and he's musing about a particular challenge. And he said, you know, a moment of courage versus a lifetime regret. He says, mm-hmm. how many times does it come to that choice? Yeah, you know, and I'm certainly so more so in police work than in our work, but same kind of thing. You know, are we going to be honest with everything we do and everything we tell patients, and 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 how we bill insurance, and 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 uh, and all the all the things that that we can look back on and say, you know what, I I didn't make the most money in town, I didn't have the nicest house, drive the nicest car, but but I can put my head on the pillow and say, you know, I did my best, I worked hard, and I I was honest, and uh, that's that's worth a lot. Amen. Well, Jeff, yeah. I don't know if there's any better way for us to end in this conversation tonight. I want to be respectful of your time and and thanks so much for being on the on the conversation. I appreciate it. Hey, it's it. been a pleasure and I'm looking forward to continuing to rub shoulders and Yeah, it'll be fun. We'll we'll do this again for sure. Very good. Awesome. Thanks. Might be a bit